This is Asia in Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of Asia in Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from our experts in Asia Pacific on the issues that matter most to businesses. Hi, everyone. This is Angela Mancini, partner at Control Risks. I lead the Asia Pacific Markets Group. In today's Asian Focus program, we're going to take a look at the Pacific Islands. Now, this is a region that doesn't often make headlines, but it actually has been recently as an increasingly important arena of great power competition, but as we'll also discuss as we go forward here, also an area of increasing business interest as well. People who have been following this in press have seen China recently signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands, which got a lot of headline attention. And Australia's government actually called that the worst Australian foreign policy disaster since World War II. In advance of that, there had been concerns that Australia and the U.S. and other allies had not been paying enough attention to a region, which is quite important. It's a region that has huge exclusive economic zones. It serves as the gateway between Japan, Australia, and New Zealand, and Australia provides half of Japan's iron ore and raw cotton. It's quite an important transit zone. And it's, of course, an area of military importance. The concern on the Australian side, for example, is that, you know, could we potentially see a Chinese Navy outpost less than 2,000 kilometers from Australia. So it's an important area geographically, and it's an important area for imports and exports uh, to go through. And we're now seeing increased interest from China. The security pact that was signed with the Solomon Islands was seen uh, by the West. Some people said, quote unquote, it's a wake up call. And in the wake of that, we've seen over $800 million of assistance coming from the US administration. We also saw the standing up of the partners in Blue Pacific between the US, UK, Australia, New Zealand as an alliance somewhat akin to the Quad uh, looking at that region. So with all of that as a backdrop, we thought it would make sense to speak today in our Asian Focus podcast about the region why it's important and making headlines now in a more detailed way, and what the potential impact and opportunities might be for investment in and around the region. Geopolitical posturing in the Asia-Pacific has caused a re-emergence of interest from great powers in the region. In the long term, their actions will increasingly force countries and businesses into zero-sum decisions, heighten volatility and geopolitical tensions, and have wide-ranging business impacts. Geopolitical developments in this region shouldn't detract from the focus of Pacific Island nations, and that is infrastructure, climate change, and economic diversification. Those were Dan Reshafen, our analyst based in Shanghai, and Harrison Chang, director based in Singapore. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more with Dan and Harrison about what is exactly the international environment facing the Pacific Islands, and actually, what are the top priorities on their own agenda as well? And if we think that the interest, whether it be political or investment-related interest, is actually going to be sustained in the longer term or if this is a little bit more flash in the pan. Dan, let's start the conversation with you. Can you walk us through who the key players are in the Pacific Islands region and, you know, both locally and from a geopolitical perspective, and why is this making headlines now? 
As you highlighted in your introduction, the Southwest Pacific has really emerged as an area of keen interest to major powers in recent years. And, you know, this is largely due to China's expanding engagement with the region and then the subsequent U.S. and allied country response to that engagement. The allies that I'm talking about here are really the Pacific Rim allied countries of the U.S., including Australia, Japan, and New Zealand. So... China is really the new player in this area, and it has a number of diplomatic, security, and economic interests in the Southwest Pacific. On the diplomatic front, obviously, it wants to build out a network of countries that are friendly to China, because this will allow it to promote its various initiatives, regional agreements, and partnerships. A big goal in the past, as well, has been to switch diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China. So two of the Pacific islands, uh, Kiribati and the Solomon Islands, in 2019 switched their diplomatic recognition mission from Taiwan to China. And four of Taiwan's remaining 13 diplomatic allies in the world, they're all in the Pacific. So China in recent years, they've increased engagement in regional organizations, uh, increased high-level visits to the various countries, uh, and also the number of professional diplomatic staff at its embassies, and and just deepened a, a whole range of different bilateral partnerships they have with these individual Pacific island countries. On the security front, China wants to build out its regional security architecture because this will help the country defend its own economic interests in the region, as well as counter U.S. military supremacy. U.S. has really been the dominant uh, regional hegemon from a security standpoint since uh, the end of World War II. And as Julia mentioned, you know China's uh, security ambitions have really been most successfully realized with the Solomon Islands uh, so far, with whom China signed a security pact back in April, but it's still not really clear yet what what tangible will come out of that agreement. China has also been working on a number of infrastructure projects that the U.S. and its regional allies have have characterized or accused as being precursors to China's expanding military ambitions. For example, a 2018 wharf that China helped build in Vanuatu. And finally, on the economic side, China, just as any country does, wants to create more economic opportunities for Chinese companies. It wants to also bring more countries into its signature Belt and Road Initiative and expand Export-Import Bank Loans, which is a bank that China founded and helps fund the Belt and Road Initiative. So individually, the Pacific Islands, they're individually relatively small markets, but collectively China views these countries as a pretty low investment, high reward when it comes to expanding its own economic might and influence in the region. And just uh, one other point that we're watching pretty closely with regard to China's engagement is that China in the past has really worked bilaterally with a lot of these countries. But in the past year, we've seen them trying to embrace and uh, promote more multilateral initiatives in the region. It hasn't been very successful so far, most notably Wang Yi, the China's foreign minister trip to several Pacific islands in May, failed to have a large sign-on to a multilateral economic and security initiative that China was proposing at that time. But this push for multilateralism really signals wider China's wider ambitions for, for its engagement with the region. And also the U.S. and its allies, like I said, particularly Japan, New Zealand, and Australia, obviously they have their own set of strategic interests and also a really long history of engaging with the region, which is one reason that they are a little bit hesitant when it comes to seeing China now come in and play a bigger role. Multiple islands in the South Pacific, they host key U.S. military installations. It's They're all really an important part of the U.S.-led security infrastructure for the Pacific. Japan 
Japan as well. It imports a lot of marine sources, timber products from the islands, as do New Zealand, the US, and Australia. There are really strong security, law enforcement, and people-to-people ties between these countries and the allied countries. And all of the countries, the Pacific Islands and the US allied countries together, they have a very strong vested interest in keeping these sea lanes open and the region stable since the region is such an important conduit for global trade. So under Biden, in part to counter China's growing influence, we've also seen the U.S. step up engagement now with the Pacific Island countries. They've announced a comprehensive Indo-Pacific strategy, created a cabinet-level position to oversee engagement with the region, and sent several senior official delegations and announced plans to open embassies in the Solomon Islands, Kiribati, and Tonga. At the same time, it's invested heavily in new regional partnerships and multilateral initiatives, including the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, AUKUS, and the Quad. Thanks, Dan, for that. That was a great overview of just (laughs) so many different players in the region, and especially what the great powers, so to speak, are looking to get out of it. I mean, I was particularly struck by your outline of the U.S. engagement in the region. I mean, as we know, the U.S. has considered that area their, you know, quote-unquote, maritime backyard for quite a number of years. And again, some criticism internally in the States that maybe they weren't paying that area enough attention. Let me press you further on what the attitude of the Pacific Islands nations is now towards all of this, because again, the criticism in the States has been, you know, maybe the U.S. wasn't paying the area enough attention. And certainly the natural kind of preemptive criticism is, you can put the over $800 million investment towards the area that we discussed. You can have the inaugural summit of the Pacific Islands nations in, in Washington, D.C. in September, and you can stand up these alliances, but is it going to be sustained? And I would be interested in your views on, again, from the perspective of the Pacific Islands nations themselves, how do they see this angle? So I think one thing that people tend to do when thinking about the Pacific Islands is think about them as one set grouping, but I don't think that's entirely accurate. Kind of when you're talking with relation to the U.S., you can broadly categorize the Pacific Islands into two buckets. There are those that are really closely U.S. aligned, where the U.S. has an incredibly strong sphere of influence, and then there's also those who are not. And those who are not are really some of the ones that we see China going a bit more forcefully after to bring them into their own sphere of influence. So as you mentioned in your introduction, Angela, among all the Pacific Island countries, there has been a really long-standing perception now for several decades that U.S. investment and engagement with the region has been waning. And this has kind of offered China an opening to engage and begin proposing some new initiatives and a new vision for the region. But On top of that, obviously, these countries, as I just mentioned, they're individual countries with their own sets of circumstances, and they have their own specific interests, such as addressing climate change and infrastructure investment. They don't really care that much about great power competition, except to the extent that it benefits them. And in that regard, they welcome renewed interest in the region, so long as it benefits them, right? So for example, the, the most notable example most recently probably is the Solomon Islands, right, which has been quite successful in playing the U.S. and China off of each other as a way to achieve some of its own infrastructure, security, diplomatic goals, right? And this has seen a lot of benefit for the Solomon Islands, but it also increases its risk of falling afoul of these great powers, which can have its own negative consequences. And one other point on the attitude of the Pacific Islands that I just want to mention is that it's also really important to consider each country's domestic opinion and politics. What I'm saying is that 
the position that they're taking is quite fluid. Sometimes the ruling party or the opposition party in their local parliaments will have vastly different opinions on which great power to engage with. So we can see the friendliness or unfriendliness toward the US or to China change really quickly based off of a domestic election. And then just to kind of answer the second part of your question, Regarding geopolitics, I don't think that it has a really direct business impact that's felt very immediately, but in the long term, it does force countries and their companies into zero-sum decisions. So a good example is a country like New Zealand has been very pragmatic in how it deals with China. But uh, many of our clients, particularly our New Zealand clients, have been repeatedly coming to questions with us this year since the Solomon Islands Security Pact about how New Zealand-China relations will be impacted by geopolitical posturing in the Southwest Pacific, which New Zealand has responded quite forcefully to, much more forcefully than it has responded to other issues related to China. And the companies, they want to know whether these long-term trends in the New Zealand-China relationship and geopolitical posturing, how that will impact their business in China? Will they be targeted uh, in overseas markets? And I mean, one really good example where we saw this happening, right, was Australia. Companies in Australia have really felt the brunt of a worsening Australia-China relationship. But also, conversely, you know, China would make its own argument that the recent export controls that have been levied against its own companies, uh, particularly its technology companies, and which will severely limit technology flows, are also geopolitical in nature. So you can kind of see that geopolitics, while not having a really immediate business impact, it's hastening technology supply chain decoupling. It can lead to political targeting in different markets. And obviously, all of these will have massive business impacts in the long term. We'll return to the conversation with Dan and Harrison shortly. For more of our analysis on the Asia-Pacific region, please do click on the link below in the podcast notes to follow our Asia and Focus podcast series. We've done a number of episodes recently on Vietnam, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, the Taiwan Strait. We did a really nice one uh, talking about supply chains moving out of China into other places like Southeast Asia. There's a lot of these insights from our experts in Asia and all over the world in the Our Thinking section on our website as well. And now let's continue the discussion. Harrison, let's turn to you now. You're sitting here in Singapore, and I know you talk to a lot of clients that have quite wide Asia-Pacific remits and are looking at this issue as one of many. And as Dan outlined, you know, looking at some of the intersection between various issues that they may have in various jurisdictions. But as we've said before, the Pacific Islands seem to take this geopolitical competition as a chance to address some of their highest priorities. So, you know, probably wisely so, not just being a price taker, so to speak, but but looking at this as a moment to think about their own objectives, either from an investment perspective or a climate change sustainability perspective or a political perspective, and trying to see how this might present an opportunity for them. So can you talk us through you know, from your view, where are the areas they need the most help in? And, and is this going to bring new opportunities for investment potentially from our clients? I think it's true that the current Pacific Island nations are making the most out of the opportunity that's been given to them at this point. And interestingly, we see that even the Pacific Island governments that are very closely aligned with the US, for example, the Marshall Islands, Palau, they are 
actually pushing even harder for U.S. commitments in terms of economic assistance, as well as development projects, uh, training, and so on and so forth. And the reason is they don't want to be taken for granted. Essentially, they see this great power competition, but they're not willing to just be treated as allies. They want to be respected as the sovereign states that they are. And where they're pushing for more investment, for more economic assistance is in terms of the renewable sector, in terms of public infrastructure, especially given that you know many of the Pacific Island nations are highly vulnerable to climate change. Tonga, for example, this year in January endured a a terrible uh, volcanic eruption and a tsunami that devastated large parts of the country, including a lot of the tourism infrastructure that Tonga has been reliant on for so long. And indeed, there's this demand among the Pacific Island nations now to invest a lot more in climate resiliency and adaptation projects, as well as uh, interesting diversification of their economy in the pandemic era where this exposure to tourism has essentially created very vulnerable economies. And now they're moving on to consider things such as digital economy, fintech, cryptocurrency in Palau, for example. And so actually for many of these countries, because they have limitations on domestic financing, many of the opportunities for foreign companies, for our clients will often come by the way of tenders conducted by uh, development organizations, uh, whether regional or global. So for example, Asian Development Bank, ADB, and the World Bank. Additionally, I think one interesting thing to mention is that the Pacific Islands could also see renewed investor interest in terms of the growing EV industry, the electric vehicle and battery production industries, and especially in the race for supply chain diversification and resilience. So actually, some of the Pacific Islands have deposits of nickel, for example, in the Solomon Islands, New Caledonia, copper in PNG in Fiji. There are also deposits of cobalt, manganese in the territorial waters of some of these islands. And it's possible that as investors look to secure uh, more diversified supply chains, they might look to the Pacific Islands as well. So I think these are some of the sort of interest areas and the possible ways in which the Pacific Island nations are going to try and tap on this increased interest in the region to attract foreign investment. Yeah, that's really interesting. And certainly when you start talking about minerals that go into things like the supply chain for EV, then it starts to be quite contentious in addition to the fact that it's a sea lane and that it's a potential military outpost as well. Dan, let's turn back to you. We're running short on time, but I do want to cover off for businesses that are looking at this region, and Harrison did a good job walking through the different sectors that might have an interest. What are your suggestions for them from a geopolitical point of view? Well, Unfortunately, I think there's very little that companies can do directly to shape geopolitics, uh, but what they can do is create internal structures and processes to quickly respond to political targeting that may arise from geopolitics. Companies, obviously, they need to increasingly protect their reputations abroad. They need to make sure they're not directly associated with individual government's actions or with geopolitical posturing. So this, practically speaking, entails creating a strong internal PR team that can review a company's positions on these issues, review what public-facing materials go out, and also put in place a crisis management team to monitor crises as they arise and quickly respond to those incidents. Harrison, over to you as well. What would your advice be for companies looking at operating in this jurisdiction as it relates to things like domestic regulation and compliance? Based on what we've advised clients looking into the Pacific Islands, it's really to firstly establish a clear appraisal of what are the credible risk areas that they need to mitigate. It's not impossible for market entry especially in sectors such as renewables. But the clients definitely need a strategy to go forth to engage the government 
and to also address some of the risk areas. Some typical risk areas, for example, integrity risks in the Pacific Islands, underdeveloped regulatory regimes, which could lead to arbitrary interpretation of uh, regulations that could then impede the operations of the investors there. Local community concerns are also one significant consideration, especially when you talk about resource projects, mining, exploration, as well as possible resource nationalism, as we've seen in Papua New Guinea, New Caledonia. In terms of the EV theme that I mentioned earlier, investors should definitely factor in any ESG risks, especially the environmental impacts of deep sea mining for some of these minerals off the coasts and in the territorial waters, uh, the displacement of local communities, and especially the human rights records of some of these local regimes as well. Definitely something that they need to pay attention to. Well, the good thing is that these governments are, tend to be quite pro-foreign investment, and I echo Dan's earlier comment that they're not really partial to investors from just one country or region or geopolitical ideological alignment. So in a sense, they are happy to receive foreign investment wherever it comes from. They're not biased. There are no sort of underlying discrimination against specific investors. Great. Thanks, Dan and Harrison. So what I hear you both saying is, while this might be a region that has not gotten a lot of attention, either politically or from a business perspective, that is indeed changing and uh, may continue to change. And there's a lot of opportunity there for investors who are looking to potentially diversify supply chains and get into areas like climate resilience and um, critical minerals and, and other types of potential investment areas, Harrison, that you outlined. So one to watch for sure. I don't think this is the last we'll hear of this jurisdiction. And indeed, Again, what I hear you saying is for in companies or investors that are looking at that space, it's the same type of risks that we have in other jurisdictions. It's integrity risk, it's ESG risk, it's know your partner. And then, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, it's making sure that you're really clear on how you're positioning your operations and that you've got a good team looking at potential reputational risks for operations elsewhere as well. So it just leaves it to me, Dan and Harrison, to say thanks so much for joining. That was a really good discussion on a very interesting area that's becoming of increasing importance. And uh, that's all for today's Asia in Focus. So thanks everyone for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to our podcast channel so you'll get all the new episodes just as soon as they come out. Thanks so much, and we'll hear from you again. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of Asia in Focus, be sure to subscribe. And make sure to check out our other podcasts as well. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.